Go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up to Galatians, the book of Galatians. And uh, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to keep my jacket on because it is freezing in here. And I only have a t-shirt on under here and need to stay a little warmer. So uh, I want to begin, you know, we're, we're doing a series in men's ministry. We've kind of gone with the theme of, of real men. And uh, we've looked at worship, we've looked at walking with Christ. And I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a real man who works for Christ. And, and I, I want to develop this over the next few times we get together. But I, I was really wanting to speak about how real men work hard and work hard at some very specific things. And the first thing I think real men really work hard at or are called to work hard at is personal holiness. And I know this is a, a re repetitive theme in the life of our church and even this ministry, but I think it's so important. And uh, I was thinking as Rowan was praying, I really appreciated what he prayed. Without knowing what I'm preaching on this morning, he prayed something really specific, that, that I would fall behind the cross. And um, I hope you see that, that prayer, I really believe, will be answered this morning, because my, my objective this morning in talking about personal holiness is really to approach it from the angle of looking at a very specific, intentional, and deep way at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I really believe that that is the key uh, at least at the very beginning stages and probably all throughout the stages of personal holiness, the real key to growing in personal holiness is to be incredibly mindful of the cross. And uh, I want to develop that this morning, but before we do that, I want to I remind you, I came across a story this past week that I, I think you're all familiar with. You've probably seen the movie that's based on this, this account. Let me just remind, it, uh, remind you of it. Um, it's about a guy named Aaron Ralston. Uh, Aaron Ralston was alone in the Utah wilderness, he was scaling a three-foot-wide slot canyon when he came upon some large boulders that were wedged into an opening. And as he tried to scramble over the boulders, one stone rolled free, and Aaron fell to the bottom of the slot with an 800-pound rock falling with him. As he landed, the boulder pinned him, and specifically his right hand, to the wall. Now, he was all by himself. He was out of sight. He was underground in a 500-square-mile national park. Nobody even knew he was gone. All alone at the bottom of this canyon, he couldn't get his hand free. He tried to, at first, free himself by chipping away at the boulder and at the wall, and nothing worked. He tried absolutely everything he could think of. He tried to use his equipment to wedge himself free. Nothing worked, nothing at all. And one day passed, then another day passed. On the third day, he was running out of entirely food and water. And he made a, a really drastic decision. He decided he was going to cut his hand off. He first started to make attempts with a very dull-bladed pocket knife that he was carrying with him, and it was unsuccessful. By day four, he was determined to snap the bones in his arm, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. By day five, he was so desperate, realizing his life was hanging by a thread, he summoned the courage to begin the process of amputating his hand. First, what he describes and what he said he did was he snapped the radius bone, and then the ulna bone, and then finally snapped all the little bones in his wrist. He tied a, a tourniquet, created a tourniquet, and he put it on himself, and he began slowly with that dull-bladed pocket knife to cut through the skin, eventually through the muscle, the tissue, and, and in excruciating pain through all the nerves in his own 
arm. This horrific and truly excruciating operation took him over an hour. Finally free, listen, he still had to get out of the slot canyon, rappel down a 60-foot wall, and begin the 17-mile hike to his car. Six hours into the, this process, he encountered a family of hikers who gave him water and alerted the authorities. He was rescued. He was airlifted out by helicopter. And I think it's fair to say that Aaron Ralston encountered one of the worst dilemmas that any person could ever face. And in the moment of facing that, he recognized that passivity, listen, would lead to certain death. To do nothing would mean that he would literally waste away and die. The only way to live was to take this bold, decisive action. His decision to amputate his own arm was stark, it was gruesome, it was incredibly awful, it was horrific. But it was, when you think about it, it was the right decision, wasn't it? It was the only decision. It was the only rational choice under the circumstances. And as I read through that story, it reminded me of the ruthless intention with which Jesus urges us to have when we face the reality of sin in our life. It reminded me specifically of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Just listen as I read them. Where Jesus says, you'll be familiar with this, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Obviously, when Jesus said these words, he was speaking of the realities of making that massive sacrifice to lay down your life and follow Jesus Christ. But he talked about it as well in Matthew chapter 5, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, this picture is a picture not only of what it means to come to saving faith, it's a picture of what it means to fight the good fight of faith, to go to war against sin, to strive hard for holiness. Jesus warns against the deadly dangers of sin with some of the starkest, think about this, some of the starkest, most gruesome metaphors found in all of the Bible. He's exhorting his disciples to embrace the most costly sacrifices, the most radical refusals, and the most drastic measures in the fight against sin. He's calling us to live a life of holy violence against sin. He's calling us to be men who work hard and are committed to working hard at killing sin in our lives. Now, I, I'm going to assume in our time together this morning that you have a, a somewhat, um, somewhat decent theology of sin. Uh, I'm not going to go into a theology of sin, not too much. Let me just maybe briefly, uh, really quickly, just kind of a bird's eye view of a theology of sin that we should understand from Scripture. This is why we need to work so hard at this in our lives, because first, sin is deceitful. We understand this, right? Sin is absolutely, utterly deceitful. It portrays itself as other than it truly is. It, it tempts us to believe that it is better for us, that it is right for us, that it is more satisfying for us, that it's going to fulfill the desires of our hearts, and it lies to us every time. It just does. 
We know sin is deceitful. Sin is destructive. If you haven't figured that out by now, you need to learn that really quick, right? One of the sayings that you've heard around here a lot is choose to sin, choose to suffer. If you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. Sin leads to destructive realities in our lives. Now listen, it leads to destruction both personally to us as individuals. Sin really dehumanizes us, right? It strips away even more than already has been the image of God that we were created to bear. That's what sin does. It destroys that, that image of God, the picture of who we are meant to be, that God created us to be. It destroys us personally. It destroys those around us, right? Sin is, is never as isolated in our lives as we want to believe it is. It never only impacts us. It always impacts those closest to us. And sometimes it can have disastrous effects in the lives of people we love dearly, can't it? Sin is deceitful. It's destructive. And, and thirdly, as we've even just saw from the words of Jesus, sin is damning. Listen, the reality of hell exists only because sin exists, right? Do you understand that? The only reason hell exists is because sin exists. Without sin, there is no need for hell. And it is sin and sin alone that damns people for all eternity. All right, there's a broad overview, a theology of sin. It's fascinating to me when you look at Scripture that the most graphic image the scriptures use for killing sin, hear this, hear this, the most graphic picture the Bible uses for us killing sin is the picture of the crucifixion, okay? Now, I think we're probably all familiar with the concept of crucifixion. In fact, I'm sure you've seen crucifixions depicted in movies, but let me just let you know, and this comes from, from good authorities, that even the most descriptive movies cannot properly depict the horrors of crucifixion. They can't even come close. I was reading some things on the crucifixion this week, and it was utterly horrific. I felt sick to my stomach reading some, some of the... the here, here's some, some quotes just off the top of my head of what I read this week about the crucifixion. Of those who were lined along the Roman road and crucified would scream until they had no voice left. Then they would hang for days, with, covered in flies, their hands and their feet literally so swollen and gangrenous that it was just, it was disgusting. It looked like just piles of meat. And then, you know, the reality of crucifixion, eventually they would suffocate to death. They would drown in their own fluids as the fluids began to fill their lungs. That's why there was a little stand on the cross where they could push themselves up to try and get just a little bit of a, a breath. And eventually, after days of suffering, the Romans would break their legs so they could no longer push themselves up, and they'd eventually drown, drown to death in their own fluids. Utterly, utterly horrific. I mean, the very word excruciating comes from the reality of the cross. It means to come out of the cross. That's what excruciating literally means. It's so graphic, it's so vile, it's so devastating, and I want, you to, I want you to just embrace that for a moment. It's scandalous that God would ever die on a cross, and yet the Apostle Paul boasts, he says, in the cross, and he represents the Christian life as a crucified life. He uses the graphic image of the cross as a metaphor for the believer's relationship with sin. And I want to show you that specifically in Galatians. And i got three spots in here that I want to highlight for you. Let's look at them really quickly. Galatians 2, look at verse 19 and 20. 
Paul writes these words, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And then he says these words, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Flip forward to chapter 5, verse 24. Verse 24, Paul says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think about that. That's the metaphor for how we are living the Christian life. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. These words depict the nature of a believer's decisive break with sin and the ongoing war that we are to have with sin. Sin's death is like a crucifixion. I want you to think about this for a section for a second. Sin's death in a Christian's life is like a crucifixion. It is uh, slow, it is gradual, it is painful, and it is eventually final. I mean, the death of sin in our lives so often, isn't it true? It takes so much longer than we wish it would. <laughs> I mean, how many times have we said, I'm never doing that again, only to do it again the next day? It is gradual. It happens over a period of time. It doesn't happen, generally speaking, in an instant. Sin is, is crucified in us and put to death in us, typically over a, a period of time that we so wish would be shortened. It is painful to put sin to death. I mean, if you've never struggled with the flesh, and if you've never had the experience of Romans chapter 7, you've never really had a fight with the flesh and fight against sin. If you've never cried out to God in pain over the sin in your life and over the longing for holiness and over the, the feelings of, 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 I can't do this, you've never really battled sin. It is painful, and by the grace of God, it eventually will be final, right? There's a day coming. This is what we long for. There's a day coming where sin will no longer be a ra reality in our lives. Isn't that awesome? Man, I can't wait for that day. Our greatest problem in dealing with sin, hear this man, I'm convinced of this, especially in the Western church, I'm convinced of this, you've heard me say this, I, I think before, hopefully you've heard me say this often, but I believe our greatest problem in dealing with sin is the half-heartedness of our commitment. I think we're lazy. I just think, generally speaking, we are lazy when it comes to dealing with sin. We live in a culture that panders to the idea of comfort and ease and, and as less work as possible. And yet, when we look at Scripture, the reality is this. No one, no one, no one kills sin. No one, as the, the old saints and divines used to say, no one mortifies sin except those who are vigilant and who work hard at killing sin. Our greatest problem is that we oftentimes don't kill sin decisively, we don't kill it viciously, or we choose not to kill it completely. We let sin linger. Maybe we focus only on the major sins in our life, and we don't look at some of the more respectable sins of our life. We just kind of let them go because we don't believe they're as bad or problematic. Or we just try to wean ourselves off of sin gradually, like an addict trying to wean himself off of heroin instead of quitting cold turkey. 
But man, here's the encouragement I want us to receive this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ gives us the power and the means to experience ongoing and increasing victory over sin in our lives. The battle over sin is always won or lost first in the mind. Always. I could stand here and give you tons of practical things to do to help you in this battle, but my objective this morning is not to focus as much on the practical, hand-oriented, what can I do. But my primary objective, and this is, this, is, this is a form of application that I want you to understand this morning too. My primary application this morning is to go after your mind. It's to go after the way you think. Because that is where it all begins. That is where you will win or lose the battle. Every time you've ever fallen into sin, action, behavior-wise, it's only because you failed at the beginning to take, take those thoughts captive to the obedience of, Je- obedience of Jesus Christ. You always lost in the mind first. Always. And so I want to be looking this morning more at what we are to be focused on in our thinking and I think that's what Paul wants us to do. As, as we've already looked at in Galatians, he gives us some hints as to how we are to be thinking and how, uh, where, excuse me, the real work needs to begin. And so the first point really I want to drive, and, and these points are going to go very quickly, so just follow along. First is this, work hard with the power of the cross. Work hard with the power of the cross. Okay, when you start to, to think about thinking, you need to be thinking about the power of the cross itself. There is power in the crucifixion. That's what Paul is latching onto in the book of Galatians. Every time he mentions this, he wants us to see that there is power when we look at the cross. Galatians 2.20 is the supreme example. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This verse is so critical in the fight against sin. I would suggest it's one that you need to embrace, one that you need to commit to memory, one that you need to come back to often. And here's why. It's essential to understand that Galatians 2.20 comes before Galatians 5, right, 24, and Galatians 6.14. The other two times Paul talks about crucifixion, he talks about being crucified to our desires, and he talks about being crucified to the world. But before that, you need to see what Paul says about how this crucifixion is to be taking root in our lives. He starts here in Galatians 2.20 because we can't do those things. We can't crucify the flesh, and we can't crucify ourselves to the world until we understand that the death of Christ is the death of sin. Okay, the death of Christ is the death of sin. Here's the important connection I want to I make for us this morning. The power to kill sin comes directly from Christ crucified for us. Okay? That's where the power comes from. The death of Christ is the death of sin. John Owen famously wrote those words. The death of Christ is the death of sin. And that means this, that only by virtue of his substitutionary death, we can have power over sin in our lives. There's a lot of talk right now. I don't know if you've been noticing this. There's been a lot of articles written. There's one recently written from the Gospel Coalition on um, really going at some people who've denied penal substitutionary atonement. That's the idea that, listen, Jesus Christ actually suffered the wrath of God in our place on the cross. He was our perfect substitute. He bore the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. The crucifixion was not just physical uh, pain, it was spiritual pain. And uh, I just, I, I want you to see how essential this teaching is to our own personal fight against sin. 
without the substitutionary death of Christ and without understanding the substitutionary death of Christ, I believe we are sapped, sucked dry of the power over sin in our lives. This is Paul's teaching, by the way, in Romans chapter 6. Just listen to what he says. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, here's the reason that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's the body of sin. That's the remaining sin in us might be brought to nothing so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, right? The whole point of the crucifixion on our behalf, in one sense, was this, was to free us from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our lives. You know, you know we sing the, the words in the, that Amazing Grace contemporary rendition, the chains are gone, I've been set free, only because of the cross. That's why we can sing those words. Romans 6, 10 through 12 says this, For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you see the connection? If you don't grasp the crucifixion, if you don't rightly see the cross, right, Paul, Paul literally roots our ability, our, our motivation, our power to fight sin and to put it to death. He always grounds it and roots it in the picture of the death of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want those two things separated. So, so every time you try and fight sin apart from uh, the understanding of the crucifixion, you're actually doing so with a limited power. You are, are limiting yourself in terms of the power that's available to you for winning that fight. The only way you can kill sin is through the power of the Spirit applying the death of Christ to your heart and to your life. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, he said this in one of his sermons, and this really, this, this functions, listen, both as an illustration and as application. This is so good. I couldn't, I couldn't say anything better, so I just, I just need to read this. He says, the best preaching is we preach Christ crucified. The best living is we are crucified with Christ. The best man is a crucified man. The more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs. Listen to this. This is so, so key. The more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs and understanding how He has full put away our sin, the more holiness shall we produce. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, where we can view heaven and earth and hell all moved by His wondrous passion, the more noble will our lives become lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Get you close to Christ, he says, and carry the remembrance of him about you from day to day, and you will do right royal deeds. Come, let us slay sin, for Christ was slain. Come, let us bury all our pride, for Christ was buried. Come, let us rise to newness of life, for Christ has risen. Work hard with the power of the cross. Secondly, work hard with the means of the cross. Okay, so what we just looked at was the objective reality of the Christian life. If you are in Christ, you are crucified with Christ, right? Sin, in one sense, has been crucified, objectively speaking, in Christ. <clears throat> we have power. Uh, that means this, listen, practically. That means that you actually have power to fight sin and to work hard at holiness regardless of your experience or how you feel. 
okay? Regardless of those things, you have the power. You have the, the access to that power available to you if you're in Christ. But there is a subjective reality. There are essentially, I think, two things we must do in order to kill sin. Here they are. We must first exercise faith, and secondly, we must exercise love. Faith and love. And this happens when we fix our minds on and fill our affections with the cross of Christ. Let's talk about faith for a minute, and and again, look back at Galatians 2.20 with me. You'll notice the progression here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? And so so maybe the next question is, well, then how then am I supposed to live? Well, Paul answers that. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live, listen, what do you say? By what? Come on. Faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, you see in that verse there both faith and love working, but let's just look first at the concept of faith. Faith, here's what that means. Fix your mind on the cross of Christ. You remember um, in the Gospels, the woman with the discharge of blood for 12 years, she comes to Jesus, she touches him, she gets healed, and, and Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Faith combating the effects of sin. That's what you need to see. Faith, Jesus praises the concept here, and he promotes the concept of faith being essential for combating sin and its effects in our lives. Y'all are familiar, they're making superhero movies faster than I can keep up these days, right? Um, Apparently they're a pretty big deal. Um, But uh, you know, the greatest heroes and the greatest villains in, in all stories always have some kind of an Achilles heel, right? Every one of them. You, you, just, you just pick your favorite Marvel superhero. You don't have to tell me here, but I know you got one, all right? Uh, uh, you pick your favorite Marvel superhero and um, your, your favorite Avenger. Every one of them has some kind of an Achilles heel. Like Superman's got his kryptonite. I mean, even the villains, right? Dracula, the only way to kill Dracula was to catch him sleeping in his coffin and put a wooden stake through his heart. Right? Werewolves, and you need a silver bullet. Here's my point. Listen, the Achilles heel for sin is faith. The Achilles heel for sin. Listen, sin is a formidable opponent. Don't ever, don't ever underestimate the power of sin in your life. Listen, but it has an Achilles heel. It has a weakness, and the weakness, the Achilles heel, is faith. Faith is sin's kryptonite, it's the wooden stake, it's the silver bullet, all packed into one. If you want to kill sin in your life, you must learn to exercise faith. But secondly, you need to learn to exercise love. In other words, you need to fill your affections with the cross of Christ. Not only do you need to fix your mind on the cross of Christ, that, that's what it means really to, to, by the way, to grow that faith. You fix your mind on the object of your faith, um, Jesus Christ specifically on the cross. But the love aspect comes when you fill your affections with the cross of Christ, when you think deeply, when you meditate consistently on the cross of Christ. Faith and love are like a, a hand in glove, especially when it's this cold, right? It, it's complementary, but listen, it's more than that. It's necessary. They rely on each other. They depend on each other. One, in one sense, is useless without the other. In fact, just look at Galatians 5 for a second. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. I want you, I want you just to see how these two things work together. 
He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, listen to this, faith working through love. Love is like the pipe through which faith flows. And the more, think about that, the more you fashion your affections around the cross of Christ, the more you enable faith to actually begin to operate in your life, right? So if you don't love the cross, if you don't love Jesus very much, you will not have much faith in that, right? It's inherent, it's built into the way we operate. The things we love are the things that we essentially become the objects of our faith. They're the things we turn to to find our support, our satisfaction, our joy, our comfort, our peace, our rest, right? The things you got to think about that in your life, whatever that thing is. And by the way, that could be a sin in your life. It could be something good in your life. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a substance, right? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your ministry. I read recently, and by the way, I, I mean, I, I take this very seriously too. I, I read recently of a, a famous minister who, who said that his dad once told him on his deathbed, his dad looked at him in his eyes, he said, he said, son, he said, listen, ministry's not everything, Jesus is. And I just want you to know, whatever that thing is in your life, you can turn to, that's not everything, Jesus is. Jesus crucified and slain is the great object of Christian love, okay? Jesus crucified and slain is the great object of Christian love. Our love answers His, too. You have to see how this works, right? We know this. First John tells us this, that we love because He first loved us. Our love answers His love. We see His great love for us demonstrated most, most, where? Where do we see His love most? It's in the cross, right? where he died for us, where he took the full weight of our sin. We look at the cross and we see how great, how vast, how deep, how wide, how massive God's love is for us, that he would die, that he would suffer like that for me. And in turn, our heart says, oh, I love the person who loves me most. I love the person who would love me like that. And when we love him, we cling to him, and we become more like him, right? Like the, you see those old couples who, you know, they're, they're, they just literally, they, it's like you're looking at the same person. You're 90 years old, been living together so long, love each other so much, they do everything the exact same. Well, that's what happens when we start loving Jesus over time. We begin to look just like him. So how practically does this look in our lives? What is this supposed to look like? Look at Galatians chapter 3. You're right there. I want you to see just verses 1 and 2. And Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Here it is right here. Pay attention to this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I want you to see what Paul points to in these believers. He, he points to what they have seen and what they have heard. Can you grasp that? What they have seen, right, with your eyes, where you've seen the crucifixion, and what you've heard about what it means to follow Jesus, to have faith in Jesus Christ. And here's my point in that. Listen, only as we gaze on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel are we transformed by the Spirit of God. 
And this is what Paul says. He says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And there's nowhere, there's nowhere that we see the glory of Jesus Christ more in one sense than in the cross of Jesus Christ. We see the picture of who God is on the cross. We see his divine love. We see his divine holiness. We see his divine justice. We see his divine wrath. We see everything and so much more than that unfolding right before our very eyes. We see the very glory of God demonstrated for us on the cross. And here's what that means. Listen, uh, here, here's something that you need to embrace. Who you are and what you love is the sum of what you focus on. I need to say that again. This is really, really important. Who you are and what you love is the sum of what you focus on, right? You become like that which you love, and you love that which, on which you focus. There's a great little book out I read earlier this year. It's called You Are What You Love. And I think it's pulling out this biblical concept. You are what you love, and in the Bible, listen, you love what you worship and you worship what you fix your gaze upon. And men, listen, you cannot be a man who is filled with the power of the cross if you do not focus on the ultimate power of the cross seen in the crucifixion. If you're constantly focusing in your fight with sin, listen, on I can do it. If that's your focus, I can do it. If you're focusing on, on your power, your strength, your ability, then who is the object of your affection? You. If you constantly focus on, I can do it, let me just tell you this, you won't. You won't do it. But, listen, here's the awesome news. If you constantly focus on, he has done it, you will. And that's what the cross reminds us of. It's just two quick things. One, constantly consider the purpose of Christ's death for you. I just, I, we need to get in the habit of this, man. This, this is a habit of thinking, a way of thinking. You need to constantly, constantly, daily, sometimes moment by moment, hourly focus Consider the purpose of Christ's death for you. Why did he die for me? Secondly, constantly expect in doing that, listen, that he will help you. Co expect it. Believe it. Believe that if you do what he says you will do to access the power that he's given you, then he will actually meet you and supply for you what you desperately need, right? As you lean in and cling to him in your time of need, he will come through. He will not let you down in this fight for holiness, in this battle against sin. But you have to do it his way. Our Savior died to destroy the works of the devil, to redeem us from lawlessness, and to cleanse and sanctify us by his blood. So maybe as we just kind of close here, I want to ask you, what, what sin is it or sins that you're struggling with right now? What are those weights and sins that are, you know, weighing you down, that are tripping you up, that are preventing you from running the race that's set before you with greater and greater endurance? What is it? What comes to your mind right now? What are those sins, both small and large, that you're looking at in your life and saying, God, I need victory over this. I cannot allow this to characterize my life any longer. I'm not going to be this kind of man anymore. I am dead to this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I just want to ask you then, in, in the midst of the struggle against sin, here's, here's, listen, here's how you gain this victory. Listen, when you meditate on the mercy and compassion of Christ in your place, this is where your mind needs to go to first. 
In the moment, in the moment, listen, of temptation, in the moment of temptation, in the moment where you're, you're about to fall into sin, in the moment where that struggle is taking place, when you start to meditate on the mercy and compassion of Christ in your place, listen, I'm telling you, this is, this is going to lead to good places. When you begin in that moment to remember that your ransom was purchased at the precious, or the price of his precious blood, when you reflect on the salvation and safety that your king has secured for you in Jesus Christ, when you realize that God is more satisfied with Jesus' obedience than he is grieved by your sin, when you ponder the pain and shame of the scourging and scoffing, the spitting and the mocking, the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands, all the cruel wounds on your behalf, when you start looking at that and when you understand that you are not only acquitted but accepted as fully righteous in God's sight, perfect in the eyes of the law because the full measure of divine wrath was poured out completely entirely on Jesus for you and his obedience was counted as yours. When your heart is filled with the glories of his triumph over Satan, sin, and death, and when your affections are captured anew by the self-sacrificing love of the Lord and the lover of your soul, then, listen, then you will discover that the stranglehold of sin on your heart has grown weaker, that sin is less alluring, and that your fallen desires have been displaced by desires for God, His glory, and His grace. Real men work hard for holiness, but they work with the right power and the right means. The cross of Jesus Christ. When you're fighting sin, fill your mind with these truths. Say, say, Lord Jesus, just do this when you're fighting sin. Lord Jesus, you died to free me from sin, to put my sinful passions and desires to death, to change me, to restore me in your glorious image. Thank you for your dying love. Now cleanse me with your blood. Strengthen me with your power. Uphold me by your grace. Help me, Lord. Listen, this posture of dependent faith and zealous love toward the Savior who was slain for us is lethal. It is the death blow to sin. Let's pray that it's true for us. Father, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to truly find increasing victory over sin. Lord, we pray that you would strip away any of the lethargy, the apathy, the complacency in our lives, especially as it relates to fighting for holiness. Father, we want you to, to make it our supreme desire to be holy, godly, righteous men, not for our own sake and our own glory, but for yours alone, Jesus. And Father, we understand that there's no, no other way to do that, not to have any kind of final victory in our lives over sin than by fixing our gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ, by meditating deeply upon what took place there on our behalf, by looking at, by thinking about, by dwelling on the great love of God in Christ Jesus. So God, help us. Help us to be men of the cross. God, may our, our hearts not wander far from Calvary, but may they drive ever closer. God, may we be able to say and sing the words that it, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. God, make this personal for us. God, wherever we're struggling with sin in this place, Lord, I, I don't know the hearts of these men. God, I struggle to know my own heart at times, but you know our hearts, Lord. You know the blatant sins, Father. You know the sins that are, are so clear, the sins that are so clear to us, they're so clear to you. 
But God, you know the sins that we've hidden and buried. You know, you know the calloused hearts that exist in this room because of repetitive pursuing of sinful behaviors. And Father, we acknowledge that we have no strength in ourselves to defeat sin. We're not smart enough, Lord. We're not strong enough. We're not wise enough. But you are, Lord. And so, Lord, as we have looked at the cross this morning, we pray that the cross would become the focus of our lives that would help us as we move along this road of holiness. May the allure of sin dissipate, and may the allure of Jesus Christ grow exponentially in our hearts. May we love Christ, and may we love holiness. Lord, I just pray, Father, that wherever there's sin in this room, even now, Lord, as you brought conviction, we, we want to lay it down at your feet. We don't want to leave here, Lord, bearing the shame and the guilt and the weight of sin. So, Father, would you forgive us our sins? We thank you, Lord, that the cross reminds us that you do. You do in full, Lord. You paid the price completely. And so we offer it to you, Lord, and we offer ourselves to you this morning, and we say thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for your magnificent love for us. May that be our supreme delight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.